Good morning, church family. Would you recite the Apostles' Creed with me? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can call you Father. And thank you that though we are separated geographically, your Holy Spirit, your Holy Word, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. O oh Lord, you unite us in supernatural ways. Help me get out of the way so that what you once said gets said to the glory of Christ and the good of his people. And the church said, Amen. In his book, Holiness Day by Day, author Jerry Bridges tells about an estate lawyer who had some exciting news for a beneficiary. The lawyer said to the beneficiary, you have received a substantial inheritance from the estate of your former employer, and it is enough money to change your life. I'm calling to let you know about this bequest. It's yours. An account has been set up in your name, and you may begin drawing from it whenever you'd like. This game-changing news to the person was just exhilarating because that person had been living paycheck to paycheck. Well, time passed and not a dime had been withdrawn from the account. So the lawyer called the beneficiary again and said, listen, you have this account. It's yours. You can use it. It's to change your life. And here's what the beneficiary said to the lawyer. Do you have any money for groceries? He didn't get it, did he? He had access, yet he was not accessing it. It, it, it was available, but untapped. And I read that, and I thought about today's teaching from the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit. God has made a deposit in our accounts. He has given a guarantee, a down payment ensuring us that we belong to him. And that down payment is himself, the Holy Spirit. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Christianity affirms a threeness to the oneness of God. The one true God exists eternally in three persons, three consciences, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Each person is distinct and each person is fully God. Christianity does not teach three little gods. Christianity does not teach that God wears one mask at a time. Father, then Son, then Spirit. Christianity does not teach that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal spirit force. Rather, biblical, orthodox Christianity asserts that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, church, examples ultimately fail because the finite mind simply cannot grasp the infinite God. So I can talk about our triune God in algebraic terms, 3x equals y, or we can talk about a three-leaf clover, or we can talk about our federal government, legislative, executive, judicial, yet all fall short of understanding the mystery of our infinite God. Ultimately, what we know about our triune God is attested by the scriptures. So consider these scriptures. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel Gabriel replied to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. You see it? Father, Son, and Spirit. Then there's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then 1 John chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. You see, there there is a threeness to the oneness of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit enters your life. Your life becomes a holy temple of the triune God through His Spirit. It's personal. It's intimate. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son. There's the Trinity again. Father, Son, and Spirit, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So, this is not about understanding a doctrinal point. This is about grasping a deep personal truth that we know the one true triune God and we can call Him Father. Dear Father, God gives His vital presence in and through our lives. And and that's the big idea coming our way here. The Holy Spirit is God's life in me to change me so that others will experience Christ through me. And today I want us to consider three promises 
concerning the Holy Spirit. But first, let me tell you why this matters. Look up here. Without the Holy Spirit, life is relegated to just do your best and God understands. You just get through this virus thing the best you can. At least there's heaven in the end. God will understand. And until then, you, there's no substantial difference between the quality of your life and the quality of the world other than just sheer human determination. Just do your best. God understands. Church family, that is not the abundant life that Christ has promised. If Christianity is just about doing our best, there was no need for God to send His Holy Spirit. <laughs> Maybe God doesn't want our best. Maybe He wants more than our best. Did your best secure your salvation? Do you think it'll maintain your salvation? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you must be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You must be like God. And, and we hear these words and we say, but, but it's, that's impossible. I can't. And you're exactly right. But God can. God offers help. The promised Holy Spirit is Jesus' way of teaching us one of the most profound truths about the Christian life. It's impossible. It doesn't get any easier with time. It's, Christianity is not like a jet that climbs to a certain altitude and then you just cruise the rest of the way. No, it's utterly impossible. 1,600 years ago, a pastor named Augustine wrote, All my hope is nowhere except in your great mercy. O Lord, command what you will, supply what you command. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And this is what Augustine was saying. The Holy Spirit is God's supply. God's command so today let's consider three promises concerning the Holy Spirit the promise of Christ's presence the promise of Christ's provision and the promise of Christ's transformation presence provision transformation that's where we're going this morning first presence I want you to listen to John chapter 14 verses 15 to 18 Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's the promised presence of Christ. Listen, the Holy Spirit is not just to help us be nice people. Oh, they're nice, pleasant, religious people. No, the Holy Spirit in us is the Holy Spirit from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We're not talking about an impersonal activity. We're talking about 
the divine presence and power. We're talking about the Spirit who ordered and completed what had been planned in the mind of God the Father. We're talking about the Lord's power presence, later seen in Old Testament figures such as Joseph in Genesis 41-38. Pharaoh said to his servants, now this is Pharaoh. An unbeliever, a pagan. Pharaoh said this concerning Joseph. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Uh, We're talking about Deborah, who in Judges chapters 4 and 5 displayed Spirit-empowered leadership over Israel. She was a prophetess who spoke Spirit-empowered words. The Spirit's power presence is not just for Churchy religious activities. The Spirit's power presence is for statesmanship, the governing of nations in wisdom and integrity. This is the Holy Spirit who is in us. We're talking about the Spirit that gifted artistic and creative beauty of Israel's tabernacle in the book of Exodus. We're talking about the Spirit whom King David grieved in his disastrous, adulterous affair with Bathsheba. In Psalm 51, verse 11, David pleaded with the Lord, Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So the Spirit's presence is not to make us nice, docile people. The Spirit's wisdom allows us to lead fiercely. The Spirit's wisdom gives us humility to follow obediently. And the Spirit gives us strength Grace and a fresh start for our failures. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the same Holy Spirit that Jesus promises to us. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. In John 14, verse 16, Jesus says that he will give another helper, an advocate. A comforter, a comforter, some of your translations say comforter, comforter, comforter uh, in American English. This is a comforter in American English. It's soft. It's a cozy blanket. That's not the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about here in John 14. No, the comforter is from the Latin cum forte, With strength, with strength, with strength. You see, strength. Use your imagination. In the Greek language, it's the word paraclete. Paraclete, one who comes alongside whose permanent presence gives power. Haven't you known someone so winsome, so magnetically strong and gracious, so warm and generous that just a little time spent with them affects how you think and feel and behave. Someone whose very presence makes you better. Even if only for a little while when you are with them, this is God the Spirit whose love is so profound and potent you simply cannot know Him without yourself being changed to becoming stronger and and more loving 
This is the Spirit's presence. The Spirit's presence means that we don't need to worry that Jesus will abandon us when we have a bad hair day. It means that we struggle, we fail to measure up, we experience doubt, but even then, Satan cannot overcome us because the Spirit dwells within us. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, Jesus says. And you receive all of God, not part of God, but all of God is among us and in us by grace through faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit is how we will survive and thrive in our geographical distance from each other in this season of crisis. And He is with us forever, Jesus says. So the Spirit does not come in seasons of difficulty only. The Spirit's not like 911. He's not like a panic button four minutes away. No, He's here now. And the Spirit does not abandon us when we continually struggle with sin. His presence, hear me on this, His presence in us does not hinge on our obedience or effort. His presence in us rests upon the infinite grace and love of God for us. God knows that without the Spirit, we would perish. So He promises the Spirit's permanent indwelling. Because I live, Jesus says, you will live. Oh, I believe the Holy Spirit, for it affirms the promise of Christ's presence. And it also affirms the promise of provision. So because Christ is with me, Christ provides by His Spirit for me. John chapter 14, verses 26 to 27 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus says, I don't want you to worry about what you're going to say when it's time for you to speak in my name. The Holy Spirit will tell you what you need to say. The Holy Spirit will supply gospel-saturated words before the most threatening audiences that you can possibly imagine. Vicious terrorists, a violent government, an unreceptive culture. Listen to Luke 12, verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, if that's true in the more threatening situations, how much more in the less threatening situations? It doesn't mean that Jesus wants me to stop studying for my sermons. Nobody wants that. He's not prohibiting preparation, rather fearful preparation. But think about it, church. The Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. God the Spirit is about to do something. Listen, 
(laughs) I don't know the Bible enough, and I don't know my audience enough to not need this promise. Jesus' point is that what we need in the moment is beyond our capacity. But God is able. So two years ago, I went with a group from our church to Haiti. We went to be with our missionaries, John Martinez from Go Ministries. And so during that week, on that Wednesday night, we visited a small village church for midweek services. Uh, There were no street lights. It was a pitch black night. The Milky Way was just brilliant. We arrived there. We walked on a path and found the church building with flashlights. It was empty inside. There was a dirt floor, wooden benches. The pastor appeared. He turned on a very dim light, and there was one drummer on stage who started playing. And the pastor started singing. And about two songs later, I happened to glance back behind me. I was on the front row, the front bench, and I... All of a sudden, the place was packed. I'm not kidding you. 60 to 70 were uh, shoulder to shoulder, sitting together, singing and worshiping. And I'm on the front row, and I'm uh, watching our interpreter go up and talk to the pastor uh, during one of the songs. And I'm thinking, oh, the pastor wants to introduce our group. Oh, that's nice. And so the interpreter then... uh, comes down from the stage and comes to where I am and leans over to my ear. Everybody is singing, and interpreter says to me, you're on in two minutes. What? He wants you to preach. What? Just say something. I didn't even have a Bible with me. I had to borrow a Bible from one of our elders. And mercifully, the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Bible, taught me what to say to God's holy people. We looked at Luke 18 and persistent prayer. We talked about the widow who kept hounding the unjust judge. Give me justice. Give me justice. And if an unjust judge will finally give a widow justice, how much more will your heavenly Father? Now, church, the Lord gives me each year about one really good sermon. And that year it was spent in Haiti, in a village church, obscure to the eyes of men but very visible and attentive to the eyes of our Heavenly Father. But it was the Holy Spirit who taught me and spoke through me so that God's people could be nourished. And and I want you to know this promise of provision is not just for pastors or apostles. It's for us. So when you're talking with someone six feet or more away from, from them you're going to be sensitive to the setting and then at the opportune time the holy spirit will prompt you ask them ask them how they're doing how are you doing is there anything you need how can i pray for you 
And then you're going to wait. And you're going to pay attention. And you're going to listen. You're going to see how the Holy Spirit works. You're going to follow his promptings. Call so-and-so today. Write so-and-so. Make sure they're doing okay. Check on these people. Make a grocery run. Do a Bible study on social media. Pray for each other. Tell about Jesus and his love. Don't just text someone. Call them. Let them hear your voice. Bring hope to someone. Offer mercy in a mercy-starved world. Let loneliness evaporate through the fellowship brought by the Holy Spirit. Being a Spirit-filled church takes a Bible and two or three get virtually gathered. He'll whisper the cues. You improvise. And it's because He provides. He gives His presence. He gives His provision. And out of His presence and provision come transformation and i mean life-changing otherworldly gospel transformation christ doesn't merely want to use us in a utilitarian sort of way he he wants us he wants our hearts he's interested in us he's interested in my growth and my development Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit does this. He doesn't delegate it out to an angel. He testifies to our spirit. You're my child. You're no longer a slave to sin. Uh, you're no longer bound to the guilt of your past. You're my child. You're a child of God. And if you are a child, you are an heir. And because this is who you are, then live according to who God says you are. You are holy in Christ, God says. Now, be holy. 1 Peter 1.16 says, be holy because I am holy. That word means sacred, dedicated, set apart, extraordinary. The Spirit is powerful. The Spirit's not a plaything, just as a live wire is not a plaything. The Spirit is not there for us to manipulate. Rather, we are to cooperate with the directional leadership of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants to direct us to become more and more like Jesus. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, be under the influence of. When you're under the influence of alcohol, your senses are depressed and you're dulled. But when you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit, your senses are clarified. You see the world as God sees the world. You see people as God sees people. When you're under the influence of the Spirit, sin loses its appeal. We simply no longer find it interesting. And we feel about sin the same way God feels about it. And the outcome of His presence and provision and transforming life is, well, you know the term, fruit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says that the fruit of the Spirit, the harvest of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when the Spirit's fruit flourishes from our lives, others are nourished by our lives. And that's, that's just a beautiful outcome of God's transformational self-giving love that he floods us with his love and grace and mercy but it is so much that it just cascades on others so that we become a resource to a starving fruit starved world by our presence by our provision others receive transformation what an opportunity Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And neither will this virus. And why? Because of the winsome display of the spirit-empowered life. A life not led by our moods or the political climate or economic uncertainty, but a life fueled by the spirit and transformed into the very image of Christ. And that image is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. What is controlling your life right now? Is it your ego? Or is it Christ? The love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, might no longer live for their puny little kingdom of one, but rather for God's big sky kingdom. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died. And was raised. This is the Holy Spirit's promise. It's the promise of presence, provision, and transformation. Hmm. Have you ever wondered what caterpillars think about? Those poor creatures. I mean, talk about confusion. I mean, for all its caterpillar life, it crawls around on a small patch of dirt up and down a few plants. And then one day it takes a nap, a long nap. And then, I mean, what in the world must go on through its head when it wakes up to discover it can fly? <laughs> I mean, what happened to its dirty, plump, little wormy body? I mean, what does it think when it sees its tiny new body and gorgeous wings? This is our astonishment when the Holy Spirit enters our bodies. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. The Spirit has regenerated us anew in Christ. And as this caterpillar discovers its new ability to fly, we thrill at the Spirit-empowered ability to live differently and faithfully. Isn't this what the Scriptures speak of? Isn't this what we've been longing for? The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. I don't know 
what the Spirit will do or where He'll lead me each time I invite Him to guide me. But I'm tired of living in a way that looks exactly like the people who do not have the Holy Spirit of God living in them. I want to live with awareness of His provision, His presence. I want to be transformed. I want to be different today than what I was yesterday as the fruit ripens into reality so that others can be nourished. I want to be, I want to, to live so that I'm truly surrendered to the Spirit's daily leadership. Christ said that it's better for us that the Spirit came, and I want to live like I know that's true. I do not want to crawl when God has given me wings to fly. Amen.